Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. In Mossman, where we live, a few weeks ago, I walked up to Mossman Junction and the whole bookshop was full of all of my books and I was really knocked out by it. So I was just sort of standing there a bit stunned, really, looking at all of these books. And a couple of ladies walked past, looked like they might have been to fitness classes or something like that. And they said, oh, it's Ken Doan, looking at his, you know, all these books with Ken Doan written on the front of them. And I said, yeah, I'm really pretty impressed. And um, we had done a poster that highlighted some of the things that are in the book. And one of the things that are in the book, which you'll find, was about when I crapped myself at kindy when I was about five. And this woman said to me, what's this thing about the kindy crap? And I said, well, that's it. Uh, you know, I was five and I, I crapped myself. She said, oh, don't worry, I weed myself yesterday at the gym. <laughs> so it's not something that I needed to know, but it taught you something about the openness, I think, of uh, Australian women. I was very pleased about that. And funny enough, on the same day, a little bit further down, I saw this lady walking along and she had one of those harnesses that you have when you have toddlers in front of her. I couldn't see the, the child, but I could see her. And she said, I've already told you twice and I'm not going to tell you again. We are not going to Rawson Oval. We are going to the fruit shop and we're going to the post office and then we're going home. Do you understand? And as she came a little closer, I realised she was talking to a little dog. <laughs> All right, here's a start. In the foyer of this building is a wonderful uh, painting about the outback, a John Glover picture about the outback. And it's very important that Australian artists pay respect to Aboriginal art. And it reminded me of the fact that uh, James Morris and I were together and we were making a film about mobility for BMW because I'd done an art car. It's a series of cars, there's about 14 of them now, that are done by very famous artists around the world. David Hockney did one recently, uh, um, Robert Rashenberg did one. When I, when I did mine, I think most people thought suddenly I'm going to the panel beating business. They didn't quite understand the importance of it, but I was very honoured to be asked, and, uh, and so was Michael Nelson Jacamara. So we were we were about 300 miles outside of Alice Springs. Uh, Michael Nelson, Jack Amara, myself and David Mor uh, David, uh, no, not David, not David Morrison. Here's a guy we knew, David Morrison, James Morrison. And there was a bit of a time space between the setup. And so I said to them, why don't we throw some rocks, like we'll play bull. I'll throw a big rock out there and you throw rocks as close as, as you can, like the French would play bull. So we did that for about half an hour. And then the director said, right, we're ready for the next shot. You know, you can all finish now. So 
James Morrison and I got up and walked over to where we did the next shot. And Michael Nelson Giacomaro said, no, we have to put those rocks back where they live. Now that's a very great understanding of the landscape. That's an understanding that our Aboriginal people about the value of the land and how they should feel about it. It's a good lesson for me. And look, I've made a number of pictures about the relationship of Australian artists to Aboriginal artists. There was one of them on the screen, we might look it up later, called uh, Michael and Emily's Place. Emily in respect to Emily Kingwari and Michael in respect to Michael Nelson Jacamara. Emily's, most of her pictures are about stripes. So I made the top of the pictures in stripes, but I made it in enamel, in enamel, because I'm a modern person. I'm not getting the, I'm not getting it from the land. And in Michael's case, well, there's another picture. Uh, Michael's case, I made it about uh, the, I made all the dots, like the people as part of the land. But White, white artists can have dreamings as well. I made a number of pictures about dreamings. I can have a dreaming about the, about the beach and about the place like that, just while it's up there. I did this picture with, uh, at a place called Dingo Soak. It's in, uh, it's in Lake Eyre. It was so, so hot during the day, I could only work at night. Oh, here's Michael and Emily's place, just changing. The stripes for Emily Kingwari, the spots for Michael Nelson Jacamara being absolutely part of the landscape. Okay, now, where was I? I learned some great things in Canberra. You may have, if you saw or heard, or maybe it was heard, maybe it was you saw, maybe it was in the Canberra Times last weekend. In the early 80s, I was at Canberra Airport. I was rushing to go home on a Friday night. Canberra Airport, very busy. A lot of people all running around, all trying to jump on planes. And there was a guy sitting there, and he had a suit on. And a businessman, he had a suit, had a tie. Oh, I have a tie, I? And a briefcase. Anyway, he called me over. He said, are you Ken Doan? I said, yeah. He said, I've always wanted to meet you. I said, thank you very much. He said, look, I just want to tell you, he said that I know that no one else in the world likes what you do, but I think it's great. <laughs> no one else in the world, that's a pretty big number. I said, what about, you know, Judy and mum and dad and the kids and the dog, you know, no one else in the world. Great thing about no one else in the world, there's a great deal of upside. You know, there's a great ability. There. There's a lot of space you can get better at. No one else in the world. I've had some pretty tough criticism over the time because I think that sometimes people didn't quite understand what I was doing. Quite, there was a headline in the um, Guardian last week talked about me selling out. I never sold out, I sold in. I made products for people to buy. This charming gentleman, he's wearing two of the things that we made. He's wearing a bloody t-shirt and a jumper over the top of it. There's another lovely lady here wearing a scarf. These are pieces of design. These are things, people used to say, some critics once said, well, isn't your work very commercial? I have to remind them of the concept of a shop. That's what a shop is. And, and it's okay to sell things to be able to make some money to do other things. 
And I just tried, or we tried, to do everything as well as we could, whether it was swimwear, whether it was, you know, homewares or things like that. You don't, you don't trivialise them. You do them as well as you possibly can. But it's design that has a kind of end purpose. And that design led us, we had one shop, then we had two, then we had 15 shops in Australia. We had a lot of people. And that led to uh, licensing, licensing arrangements overseas and in Japan and all of those kinds of things. We got to 15 shops, I think. Interesting, good, but took me away from really what I wanted to do. I wanted just to spend the rest of the time painting. And even during that time, I'd spend a small amount of time designing and, you know, Camilla and the rest of the people in the business that would then become pieces of design. And we had a good licensing arrangement. And I, I, I know no other Australian had done this. I'm not saying it's good or bad or different. It's just an experience as an Australian artist that, uh, that I was able to have, that we had licensing arrangements in America and in Japan. Like the American one, for instance, I did the original logo for Koala Blue when uh, Living Newton John opened that shop. She and her partner, Pat Farrar, they came to Australia. And we already had one little shop in the rocks. And they really liked it very much and they wanted to open a shop in LA like that and asked me whether I would write the word Koala Blue and give them that idea. And so sure, I did that. And then we, we used to have little handwritten letters back and forth between Olivia and me. And then she wrote and she said, look, we love it so much, we want to use it on lots of different things. Well, that, that's business. So if you want to use it on lots of different things, you have to enter in some kind of licensing arrangements. You have to pay me something for that. That's the way it is. So the next letter that came is one of those letters you get from lawyers where all the lawyers' names are down one side of the piece of paper. And it was a, it was a message in fairly succinct terms. They said, look, essentially, bugger off. Uh, we are not going to enter into it. You have given this to Olivia, so therefore she can do what she likes with it. So I walked away from that. I wouldn't now, I'm smarter now, but I wouldn't, I, I walked away from it then, let them get on with it. I, I didn't know that, didn't need that complication. So about three weeks later, I get a phone call from a guy, American guy, and he said, look, he said, I've got a shop in, in Malibu, he said, I know you did those great things for Olivia. I wonder whether you'd do some things for, for me. I said, yeah, sure. He said, well, look, bunnies are very big in California. Do you do bunnies? Well, I don't do bunnies. You know, it's not on my list of things to do. So I sent him over some drawings of koalas with like long ears. And um, he came back, he said, they're walking out the door. People, people absolutely love them. He said, do you do Scotty dogs? Well, no, I don't do Scotty dogs at all. Anyway, I said, look, if we're going to do business, you have to come to Australia. So he came to Australia, he's a nice bloke. And uh, we had a licensing arrangement with him and various other American companies for about seven years. And we did lots of things, you know. I wrote an alphabet, like a California. You can write an alphabet that looks like California. So once you have the alphabet, you can write any you know, you can do Santa Barbara or Santa Monica, you can do that. So we did that. And I used to get on the plane and I'd fly to LA and I'd get off the plane and I'd run there and they'd have all these things for me to do and bop, 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 I'd do them. 
And then they said, well, we'd like you to do Midwestern towns. I'm an appalling speller. And so I remember looking at the word Albuquerque for a very, very long time. A very, very long time. And I just thought, fuck it, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this anymore. This is not, this is not something I want to do. Anyway, we didn't conclude it quite then because he, he, he sold me. When I think about it, he did. He sold me to another guy. In other words, another guy took over the licensing arrangement. Smart little cookie, but... He took me to Disneyland, and the, uh, to di like the Disney headquarters. Like, you go down Cinderella Drive, when you drive there, when you arrive, you see the parking spot, says Michael Eisner. He was running Walt Disney in those days. And the guy said, he said, he said where do you, I said, I'm expected in the design department. Okay, go down Dopey Drive, turn at Cinderella Place, Go down Three Pigs Place, and eventually you'll, you know, you arrive at, you know, Snoozy Corner, and so you do. You go there, and there are all these guys, and they're, you know, they're big time animators. They are controlling that whole Disney business, and they wanted me to do a lot of work for Disney. Well, I didn't really want to, I didn't really want to do that at all. So we eventually concluded that arrangement, as we did with Japan too. Like in the eighties. I was 40 when I, when I had, jumping back a little bit, like I left school when I was 14 and a half to go to art school. It's all I ever wanted to do. I, I'm very impressed with Sarah's medal. I mean, I reckon that's fantastic. Like I left at school at 14 and a half, gazing out the window is basically what it said on my, my report card. No, it's actually more than that. On one of my report cards, one teacher had written Ken is the most inventive student we've ever had. And a bit further down, quite embarrassingly, a teacher had written, if I ever had a son, I would like him to be about Ken. Very nice. In between, a teacher had written, this boy is a fool. <laughs> Which actually taught you that you can't win them all. That there are some people that are just not gonna like what you do. The woodwork, teacher, the woodwork teacher wrote that I was a fool because I didn't even sit for the exam because I didn't like the guy, really. And I'm not particularly good with my hands. And I remember once I had to plane this piece of wood flat. Well, it ended up like a bloody cheese. You know, it was so thin at one end and so fat at the other. It had no resemblance to anything flat. And I just didn't get on with the guy, so I thought it would be simpler that I just didn't sit with the exam. So it was a stupid thing to do. But my parents allowed me to leave school when I was 14 and a half. I went to East Sydney Tech. I wanted to see a totally nude woman. I hadn't seen one up to that particular point in time, and I was quite excited about my first life class. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've done this story, my kids are bored up on it, um, when they're old enough to understand. Um, life class. So for the first year, you don't have nude models because otherwise everybody would turn up. You know, young solicitors turn up, so I'm art student, take off your clothes. It's, there's got to be a probationary period. And so it's in this, because you draw from plaster cast for the first year. So in the second year, when it was the first life class, which I do remember started on a Thursday at 9.30, I was there about 20 to 7. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> even I'm laughing.
laughing at it, it's terrible. Um, you sit around the outside, the model comes in, she takes off her clothes, you do a number of 30 second drawings, then a two minute drawing, and then a five minute drawing, and eventually uh, an hour and a half drawing, up till about midday. And the art teacher goes around the outside and corrects the anatomy and leans over and shows you how the body works and things like that. He never ever came to speak to me. I was really getting worried about it, you know, what, what was that? What was I doing wrong? Never spoke to everybody else, never spoke to me. At about 5 to 12, just before the class finished, he finally came to me and he said, don't you think it's about time you attempted the head? <laughs> Bit of a giveaway. Okay, so I left art school, I wanted to work. I wanted to work as a designer. I opened a small studio in Rose Street. Well, first of all in Sussex Street, but then in Rose Street. Rose Street was a little, very fashionable little street in Sydney in those days. I was in partnership with a, uh, a schoolmate of mine, a guy who ended up being my best man. Uh, we were almost like the first business selling creative ideas to advertising agencies. Normally in those days advertising is kept uh, within the agency itself, but we thought we could do it independently. We had a business called Visual Communication. Uh, I was the chairman, Bob was the managing director. I won the chairmanship on a toss. Right? We tossed the coin, who's going to be the chairman? I won, I'm the chairman. <laughs> so a very small business with, with run by a managing director and a chairman and no staff at all. But we kind of, you know, we thought we knew what we were doing. And uh, it was pretty successful for a while. I wanted to travel, I went to Japan. I was very interested in Japanese design, both contemporary design and traditional Japanese design. Like, I didn't imagine or I didn't think that I would want to be a painter straight away. I wanted to travel, I, wanted, I was interested in mass communication, I was interested in design, I was good at it, and I couldn't imagine just sitting in a studio painting. I mean, a lot of people now come to me, just finished art school and say, well, I'm an artist. And I said, well, maybe you should go away and paint 500 pictures and come back and talk about it. It takes a very long time to be an artist. I very rarely use the word. I think I'm more of a painter than an artist. Sometimes I might be a paint, an artist. Very misused word. In other words, I'm not a sculptor. I'm not interested in uh, installations. I'm interested in painting, in the act of painting, which actually hasn't changed much since caveman time, right? The act of making a mark on something. Where was I before I went up that track? Talking about visual community. I went to Japan, liked to Japan, came back, went to America. I went to America. I took a bus across, I went first of all to Mexico, I went up to Los Angeles, <laughs> I took a bus across America, I was hired by a very big advertising agency in New York. I am mechanically illiterate, so it was quite a surprise to me when they gave me the Ford account to work on, because it's not really my track, you know. But gave me a very big office, big... It's the time of Mad Men. That's what 
You know, American advertising was like in the in the mid sixties. They had a big office, big leather chairs. The guy in the office, all the creative directors could design their office to whatever they want to be. Then the guy next to me, he had a kind of oak floor put in. He had a lot of boating ephemera. He wore a boating cap. He had a ship's wheel and he had a bar in his office. I mean, that's great advertising in the 60s. Absolute wankers, you know, that's but quite an interesting thing. I mean, even in Australia, when I was in the business, Peter Carey had an advertising agency. Ale um, um, Philip Adams had an advertising agency. If you wanted to make a commercial, you made it with Bruce Beresford or with Fred Skepsy or any of those people. Advertising was the thing that gave you that particular track to go on. So anyway, I couldn't stay in New York, I couldn't get a green card, so they asked me whether I get a new, uh, to London. I went to London, I got an offer from Ogilvy and Mather, but I got a slightly better offer from J. Walter Thompson, and I'm really glad that I got it. Thompson's a very, this is 1965 in England, a very halcyon time for England, a lot of very good things going on. Very optimistic time for England. Whoops, very optimistic time for England, wasn't it? Um, anyway, they said, well, here's the copywriter that you're gonna work with. And this, this strange little thin guy with slightly poppy eyes came in and said hello. Anyway, we worked together for a couple of weeks before I realized who he was. It was Dylan Thomas's son, Llewellyn, who came here to Australia. Very nice guy, Llewellyn. I talked a little bit about him this afternoon. Terrific writer. And when you've got the background of your father being Dylan Thomas, that's a that's, that's kind of a bit of a cross to bear in some ways. Um, Llewellyn liked to drink, or six, and um, his brother also came here to Canberra and lived for a while. But when Llewellyn came here, when I finally convinced him to come to Australia, he wanted to know, were there any weedy people in Australia? Weedy. He was worried that we'd all be big, you know, kind of masculine buffets and he wanted to make sure there'd be some little thin people as well because he was a little thin person. I assured him there's plenty of little thin people in Australia. So he said, okay, I'll come to Australia, but there's something else I want to do. I said, what's that? He said, I want to go through Bali, but I don't want to hear any Balinese music. Now that's very hard. <laughs> you hear Balinese music in the vault when you go to Bali. You cannot escape Balinese music. But that's the kind of thing that he'd, he'd set himself to do. But we worked very well together in London. We, we got on very well and he was a terrific writer and I was speaking today on uh, Canberra Radio about one of the jobs we did. We worked for the Beatles or worked with the Beatles on the first White Album, you know, not the first, the White Album that they did. So Lou had the job of writing the words, I had the job of doing the picture. There's no picture that you need to do. If you're the Beatles and the album is white, you don't have to put any visual at all. You have to do the arrogance and, and confidence of not putting a picture not putting a picture. So that was the plan, that we would have a series of four pages in various English magazines, in English newspapers, with no image, but just a few words in the middle of the page, tiny. It's confidence. 
and Lou wrote the each ad to respond to whatever the publication was. For instance, I remember the in the Financial Times, in the middle of the whole big full page, in tiny words, it said, pretty much I can remember line for line, it said, uh, the Beatles' White Album will be released today. Each album would be numbered and it is confidently expected that the lower, mon lower numbers will increase in value. In other words, it's just like a piece of stock. You are writing the words to relate to the particular album itself. So he was a good writer, and I worked with some good writers over the years. I worked with Richard Walsh when I came back here, worked with Bryce Courtney. And in London, I work with uh, Bill Oddie and Tim Brooke Taylor before they became the, the goodies. I'll only tell you half this story because the other half's in the book and you need to read it yourself and make up your mind. But the first part of the story is that we had, we had done a series of commercials for Campari, cinema commercials, 60-second cinema commercials to run uh, in you know, London and... Birmingham, Scotland, things like that. They're very sophisticated commercials and they're very funny. And they went on to win the Cannes Gold Lion in 1967 for the best commercials in the world. Now that's, you know, that's slightly better than the kick in the bum. I mean, that, we were very, very pleased about that and so was the Campari client. So the problem was, well, what do you do next? So I wanted to do a series of four-page ads in the Sunday Times Colour Supplement and in the Observer Colour Supplement. And I wanted to work with whoever were the best photographers in London in those days. So you're talking about uh, David Bailey, um, um, Parkinson, David Bailey, Norman Parkinson. But the big prize of all was Lord Snowden to see whether you could get him to work because he'd only just recently married Princess Margaret. So I was given the job that Thompson's, a very established agency uh, in Barclay Square in Dover Street, and we organised a lunch for Snowden to come to, and it was my job to broach the subject to him as to whether he'd be interested in doing some commercial photography again. So he's arrived, I have to sit next to him, we have a very nice lunch, you know, quail's tongues, a bowl of quail's tongues and a, you know, a few pheasant eggs and things like that as was in London those days. Anyway, I talked to him about this thing. I said, look, I, I really hope that you might be interested in doing these pictures. And he said, well, why don't you come to my place next Thursday and we'll, we'll talk about it. Now, I wasn't precisely sure where he lived, but obviously I found out he lives in Kensington Palace. So Thompson's a big agency, about 600 people. And they all knew that I was going to the palace that afternoon. So I'm wearing a suit, I have a tie. I'm going to the toilet every 20 minutes, you know, <laughs> just before I get into the cab outside Barclay Square and I say to the cab driver, oh, Kensington Palace. And the guy says, oh, that Kensington Palace Hotel is a gov. No, I said, no, it's Kensington Palace. So, because there's a road that goes up beside the Kensington Palace Hotel. So he went up there and the butler expects you and you're, you are taken into his study. It's a small room and a um, very nice little Nolan picture on the wall and some pictures about his marriage because he'd only just been married and so had I only just been married. So we talked about that for a while. Uh, I knew everything about his marriage. He knew absolutely about it all about mine. But it was a way of us kind of talking about things. He didn't seem to want to talk about taking these pictures at all. 
He said to me, had I heard about the moving platform that he designed? Well, fortunately I had because he designed a moving platform that if you're an invalid, you could put whatever chair you felt comfortable on, on top of this platform and it had a little forward and go stick and you could drive it around like a little wheelchair. He said, I'd love you to have a look at it. I said, look, I'm not an industrial designer, but obviously you can't say no. So he calls the butler and the butler brings in the moving platform. And the phone rings and he's on the phone. So I'm on the platform. I have to be very careful and knock anything over, right? So I go zzz, up to the bookshelf, zzz, back to his desk, zzz, everything. Um, I'm driving it and fortunately I hadn't hit anything and I was just zzz, up, up to the bookshelf. And part of the bookshelf opened and Princess Margaret walked in. Well, it really gave me a surprise because it's obviously her house and she can come in whenever she wanted to. But I was so surprised. Like, I, I kind of half got up and I, I did what I describe in the book as like a half limbo, half curtsy. Because you've got to do something to signify some kind of, you know, respect and reverence. And because he's on the phone and she says to me, who are you? And I heard myself say, I am an Australian. <laughs> and it stopped there. As if I was, you know, that would cover anything. If I was sick, or if I farted, or if my hand inadvertently went down a blouse. I am Australian, would cover everything. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. You have to read it in the book, but let's say, it was a very interesting uh, relationship. <laughs> are we still talking or are questions happening? Five, five minutes. Okay, five minutes. What will we do in five minutes? Let's do... Let's do, like, the reef, the barrier reef. Uh, you may know, I think it was last Christmas, not last Australia Day, maybe the Australia Day before, uh, all the major uh, newspapers in Australia, like on the east coast of Australia, they all covered a big painting of mine of the Barrier Reef. And I was really pleased about that. And of course, the Barrier Reef is such an incredibly important part of Australia that A, I was honoured to be given that opportunity, and B, it is a kind of political statement in a way. I mean, I like to do paintings that are quite pretty. I mean, I know this is not a word often used in contemporary art, but I'm going to say it again, it's pretty. Things that involve you, things that you like to see over time, things that give you pleasure. I think at the time in which we live, when you can see suicide bombers on television every night when you're having dinner, that painting can be more like poetry, can give you pleasure over a period of time. Um, let's, what are we, okay, there's, all right, there's Michael and, Michael and Emily's place. Stripes in an enamel because I'm a modern painter. Spots because Aboriginal people as part of the landscape. What's the next picture? Okay, this is a picture called Christmas Tree Reef. If you dive a lot, as we do, on grey rocks, there are tiny little things that pop out and they're called Christmas trees. So this was the idea behind this painting. Then obviously I made them slightly more like Christmas trees 
It's the pattern of things. Strange enough, I painted this picture just before we went to uh, Greenland. Judy and I did, um, went from uh, Greenland to Alaska last year, Northwest Passage, very interesting trip. And all the houses in Greenland, they're on gray rocks and they're all in different colors. This is quite an amazing adventure. Um, only one boat got through. It's a very uh, difficult track to go. Um, Kangalusak, which is in Greenland, to Nome in Alaska. And people say, well, wasn't it dangerous? Yes. Three o'clock every afternoon, overweight American tourists trying to get the bloody fresh scones when they came out from afternoon tea. They would knock you over. They would knock you over. No, there are some dangers involved. And even last November, Judy and I and Camilla went to the Antarctic and I'm having an exhibition in the middle of the year you know, with the prophets going to breast cancer for the experience of being in the Antarctic. And we were really worried about the Drake Passage. You know, the Drake Passage is the most notorious piece of uh, sea in the world. We were expecting two days of projectile vomit, flat as a pancake going over. We, we couldn't believe our luck. Okay, what's next? Oh, here's a good one, leopard coral. The sea is never yellow. There's nothing. Leopard coral doesn't exist. I made this picture about the feeling of being under the water, not what it literally looks like. Water's never that colour, and there's never anything called leopard coral. It's just that I, put, I wanted to put some spots down the bottom, and when I finished the painting, I thought to myself, I'll call it leopard coral. Next. Obvious. Sydney Harbour Bridge, I've been painting it for a long time. It's a little game I play with myself now, finding different ways of doing it. I think the amazing thing is that all people in Australia have a relationship with the Opera House. Even if you're a jackaroo in the back of bloody Burke, you feel something for the Opera House. And for a country up to that point in time that was essentially a very masculine country, to have something that symbolises us as an Opera House I think that's really good. Next. Uh, this is one of the pictures from the Antarctic. I'd never painted icebergs before. I didn't do any work when I was down there. I just wanted to seal my head what was in there when I came back. So this is a, period, a piece about icebergs. Next. This is the picture that uh, is in the National Portrait Gallery and Sarah did write a very nice thing about it. I was very honoured and pleased that she should. And yes, it's a picture about fame, about what people think about you, and of course, what you really are inside and underneath, which is probably, you know, none of those things, okay? A shell, I can draw. This was the very, when I left advertising, I wanted to do things, I wanted to see whether I could afford to keep the family, basically. We had one child thinking of another, had a big mortgage, so I made a drawing of a shell and a drawing of a basket of carries and uh, I printed them. That's like repeating the singular effort. It's not like doing the same painting over and over and over again. It's making something that people, you could sell to a shop and they'd buy. It's not revolutionary. You can go into any big gallery now. You, you go to even the big national galleries here, um, or in Sydney or in Canberra, and you can see a big and important show, and then you can go into the shop, and they'll have lots of things related to the artist. With one exception. 
The artist, almost inevitably, is what we in the trade called dead. <laughs> dead. In other words, it's some corporation. If Van Gogh is alive, he'd be doing bloody sunflower hats. You know, it's just part of that way of extending what you do. Next. There's the basket of carrots. Oh, I used to have black hair. I used to have a black moustache. I used to be thinner. <laughs> Next. A <laughs> uh, very sweet painting, a deliberately sweet painting. This is the view from the studio in Chinaman's Beach. I wanted to show people how much I loved all the pattern of all the things, how much I loved the colour. There's lots and lots of clues in there if you know the things about me or about us as a family, the postcards and the places that we were going and the paint itself. And people in those days used to say sometimes, you know, oh, there's always French Japanese in the painting. Well, you know, they're outside, they're bloody, you know, they're there. Okay, next. Uh, it's not always about colour. It's not always about colour. When it's grey, it's just as beautiful. Just as beautiful. I mean, we got, every t in the 80s, when we would do things in colour, so many people knocked us off. And everything was in colour. People would think I did it. And I'll tell you the best example. Uh, John Coates, who uh, ran the Olympic Games, he was speaking in Sydney only a couple of years ago. Big, you know, formal meeting, lots of people. I was in the audience. He was kind enough to acknowledge me. He said, oh, yeah, that's Kendo. Uh, did the uniforms for the Olympic volunteers. No. No, we didn't do them at all. They weren't bad, but they weren't great. We didn't do them at all. But... People, even a guy like that, thought that somehow we had done them, okay? Hanako, uh, this is Japan. I did the cover of this magazine every week for 13 years in Japan. So every week on the newsstands in Japan was my work. And I'll tell you one slightly interesting thing about this. Because I wrote that word, Hanako, and it's in my, like it's got my name underneath it, um, the Japanese accept that I own the expression of that word. So every time they use it, even now when they, it's more of a fashion magazine and they, 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 don't, uh, they don't use my art in the cover, but 13 years, no other artist in the world's ever done that. 13 years, that's why it's quite well known in Japan. I had an exhibition in Japan, 200,000 people went to see it. No one wrote a line about it in Australia. Okay, move on. Uh, hard to see paintings based on Japanese haiku poetry. You, even if you could see them, you wouldn't have thought to yourself, oh, and that looks like Kendo. Um, that's all right. You can do more than one thing at once. Right. Experimenting on the moon, I hung... Uh, I, experimenting, I hung the moon on various branches of the pine. It's a very interesting thought. I think what it means is if you went out tonight and the moon was there, almost inevitably you'd, you'd look at the moon and you'd think how beautiful that is, but you kind of arrange yourself in a position where it looks really nice. So it could relate to the artist making a picture and placing the moon, or it could relate to you being part of the art itself and being the painting. Okay, next. A very pretty picture. This is a, a lovely poem that says, I would learn of their dreams in flowers, but our butterflies have no voice. So I did four panels. 
I wrote it in uh, English and I wrote it in Japanese. We we have a very nice Japanese assistant, been with us for 25 years. And people in Japan say that I have all the facility of a nine-year-old person when <laughs> when I write Japanese. But they can, they can see it. So it was an opportunity to, to make something that by its very thought should be pretty. Butterfly lasts such a brief period of time. Even a butterfly's dreams would be about beautiful things. Next. And it led to us winning the Grand Award for Fashion in Australia in 1993. And I, I, I don't think people understand what that journey was. Like in, in, in 1980s, I might have been doing bloody koala drawings that, you know, nine-year-old girls in Japan would faint by its very cuteness. To go from that to winning the Grand Award for Fashion, I'm very proud of that. And I'm slightly unhappy about the fact that there's an exhibition in the Victorian National Gallery at the moment of 200 years of Australian fashion we don't get to mention. Next. Uh, walking on Lake Eyre. Um, going from this end, um, uh, Wendy Day, Judy, Doan, Mark Day and me. We were out in Lake Eyre. It was very, very hot. Uh, Wendy is Nicole Kidman's representative in, in Australia. Um, she used to talk to Los Angeles at night on a mobile phone. They had no idea of where we were and it was very hard to describe to them how far we were there. Um, Mark wrote a book called uh, Pulse of the Nation for the year 2000. Took various Australians to various parts of Australia. Like took uh, Thomas Keneally somewhere, took Bob Brown somewhere. Wanted Judy and I to go out into Lake Eyre whereas he thought there wasn't any colour. Well, of course there was. Next. Uh, Dingo Soak did it at night. Uh, it was too hot during the day. You had to just lie in the, in the tent during the day. You, it was the kind of heat that you understood that that could kill you. So I had to work very, very, very fast and work at night. Next. Oh, we're back again. All right, well, what about a question or two, or is it all too late? Yes? <laughs> Thank you. The self-portrait that you put up was the brightly coloured one, but I'm sure I've seen others that, oh, there have been. that were much darker and much... Oh, absolutely. I did one last year called Growing Old, which is very, very dark portrait. Look, when, when, and I'm also, you know, entering this year in the Archibald Prize, when I'm hung in the Archibald Prize, which I have a number of times, I'm pleased to say, I always think, well, you know, they've got great taste and understanding and clear eyes. Uh, when I'm not, I think they're a bunch of fuckwits wouldn't know a good painting <laughs> if it fell off the wall and hit them severely on the head. But that's just the ego of the artist, essentially. Have you done some of your own self-portraits? I'm sure I've seen one. I think that's what a self-portrait is. Well, yes. <laughs> you know, not the Archibald Price, but sure. I'm sure I saw some of them well, I'm not in that place very often, but I am sometimes. Like everybody is. It's not a fairy tale. No one escapes it. I mean, there are hills and valleys. So I've said earlier on, this is a memoir, not a confessional. <laughs> and I've said Mr. Tisha. There you go. Um, look, as an artist, uh, you can measure success in a couple of ways by uh, what the critics 
the people that are experts in the field think or by what the masses think. You know, I, I think Meryl Streep's probably got more Academy Award nominations than anyone. Hasn't actually been a major box office star, whereas Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tom Cruise, um, Harrison Ford sell all the tickets that never get nominated for anything. You've been hung a lot of galleries, you've been sought out and you know had certain opinions by critics. You've also been on big commercial and Duna covers. As a painter, what do you think is the greater testament or more meaningful to your work as an artist, the fact that you may have meant a hell of a lot to a few people that really know what they're doing, or the fact that you mean a little bit to the masses and have captured something about this country and to the, you know, Japan who view us through you? Look, it's a question that deserves the rest of the night, isn't it? Because it's a very, very complicated question. I always knew that my education would be in public. I always knew that the first things that people would see would be things that sought a very wide audience. And it became harder, harder than for uh, people to understand the paintings. We talk about this a lot as a, as a family. But uh, look, even Tim Storia once said to me, mate, you should have another name. You should design under one name and paint under the other. No, bugger that. This is what we do. And we're very, very proud of it. I'll give you s something. I had an exhibition a couple of years ago in the, uh, the regional gallery in um, Tweed Heads. Always in a gallery there's a book where people write things about you. And you want to see that book. But you can't rush over where everybody, when everybody else is there. You, know? you have to wait till there's no one else in the gallery until you race over and you look. And so I did. I raced over and I looked and, you know, people are saying wonderful things and you think terrific, 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 terrific. The one that you really remember, the one that's less than terrific. And, and in this particular case, there's one that I still think of and that I treasure. It was a girl from a Wollongbar and she had written, really can, I can do better paintings and I'm still in primary school, next time try harder. <laughs> it's pretty good, isn't it? It's pretty good because of course I can't do paintings better than kids in primary school. They're infinitely better than me. And next time try harder, well, I will. I will. I think that's the drive that keeps you going. I suppose the really answer to your question is I'd like to be, I'd like to be appreciated in both of those areas. That if we did something that sought a wide audience, we did it well, and that something that I did as a painter was worth keeping, you know? Yes. Sorry. Oh, here's another question from the same table. <laughs> there um, we go. I was interested that you went to East Sydney Tech and did the life drawing classes and so on. And I, I think of that and I look at your art and I can't see a lot of um, direct relationship. I'm just wondering if you were a 14 and a half year old uh, aspiring artist now, would you still go down that same sort of path or do you think there's a better way of doing it or a, a more relevant way of doing it? 
that suggests that there would be a path, whereas there's not. The path is what you want it to be. You make the track and it's not going to be like it was in the past. It's 2016. Artists uh, can go about things in different kinds of ways. I mean, what I said before is that it's, I am quite conservative in the sense that I'm working as a painter, as working as a painter. Whereas, you know, the Turner Prize a few years ago was given to a guy that's about a light bulb turning off in a particular room. I'm not saying that's good or bad. That's a kind of attitude. But I'm not, in the time that I've got left, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in making paintings that I like. And if other people like them, I already know in my head what the next series of pictures are. I'm not sure that I can do them, but I want to do them and I want, and I hope people like them. But for an Australian artist, uh, let's use that arrogantly enough word to call myself an Australian artist. I'm not like the ones that went before, even though Sidney Nolan, Lloyd Rees, Roland Wakelin, all worked in advertising, not as successfully as me, but we're all in that business at some point in time. And we can look back now on their careers and enough time has gone past we can tell whether they're good or bad. I think an artist has to be dead maybe 20 or 30 years before you really see where they fit. And as you know, it's the ultimate career move, isn't it? <laughs> I'm trying to avoid it. But I know somewhere in the back of my head, that's the move. <laughs> yes, mate? Can you basically answer my question then? Because I was going to say that you're at a stage in life where a lot of people are retiring. And I was going to ask you, what are your goals for the future? I hope it's not to. <laughs> not the ultimate career move um, I dislocated my shoulder at Christmas so my, ultimate, my next move is to try and get back to golf which I like to do I'm still working, I can work flat that's not a problem um, we like to travel a lot and for all of our lives Judy and I we've always spent our money on travel and travel with the family for me and the grandchildren is the ultimate thing that I like doing more than anything else um, you might have read in the Sydney paper recently, I was talking about over Easter, the grandkids were there and we were all painting, I always give them to paints to work with and I was talking to my eldest granddaughter, Ava, who's seven. Uh, I was looking at one of the big reef paintings and I said, you know, I think that's just about finished. And she said, no, I don't think so. I said, what do you mean? She said, I think there should be a few little pink spots in one corner. I said, you know, we're probably right. So I put a few little pink spots, you, you know, seven years of age, to tell you the truth. So um, for me, the future is more time with the family. That's what sustains me. I mean, Judy and I have been married for more than 50 years. More than 50 years, that's a long time. That is a long-term relationship. And we hope, you know, we've got a few more years to go. Yes, mate. I was just wondering when Kendo realised that he was a better than average painter. Was it early in life? Did you have people telling you at the age of seven, oh my God, it's Picasso reborn? Or what, what happened? <laughs> There's two ways around, excuse me. Like, 
My mother would tell me that when I was five. <laughs> I don't think you ever know that because actually I think art teaches you more about failure. You look back on certain things that you've done and you thought, yeah, that's not so bad. And I like it when people, I like it when, like when, when a painting leaves, it has another life. Painting's only half the conversation. It's what you feel about it. It's what you bring to it. I like it when I go to a house and I you know, find a painting that lives with somebody else and you think that that's not so bad. I don't think you ever really know. I think it's just what you do, you know? It's just what I do. confrontation here. <laughs> the lady in the Matisse blouse, I told you this, like a Matisse painting, it's called the Russian blouse, remember that, it's very pretty. Um, I guess um, uh, listening to you speak and then um, looking in, I feel that you, you must have been just too ahead of your time yeah. with your commercial work um, and um, for Australia at the time and also too, I was just wondering, um, I think, um, well, your feeling towards, um, if you do like beautiful paintings um, and you're not like a brooding artist that can express, or they don't want to express that, you know, torture or that side of life, then I guess people, do you think people don't understand that, that, that need to express Beautiful. Okay, here's the answer to this. About uh, three or four years ago, uh, or maybe it's longer than that, uh, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And any man amongst here, if there's anything you've got any PSA rating goes up, can't do something about it. Anyway, so I had my prostate removed, it's not a very romantic subject, is it? But there you are. Um, on a Friday, I was home on Sunday, I was painting on Wednesday. And for the next, I think maybe three or four months, I did a whole series of paintings about the attack on Sydney Harbour by the Japanese midget submarines. It's very well reviewed. People took it very, very, very seriously and wrote really good things about them, which I was very pleased about. But a bunch of flowers is serious too. It's just that sometimes people had in their head, and maybe some people do, that it can only be taken seriously if it's a really serious subject. Well, I don't believe that. I think in the time in which we live that we are essentially unshockable. When you've seen uh, the suicide bombers, you know, when you're having dinner at night, I think art should be more like poetry and should give you pleasure over time. But that, that's only my opinion. That's the great thing about art. There's a couple of people here tonight when we were signing the book, they said they were studying art or they were doing art or things like that. And all I can say to them is that you have to remember you're doing it because you love it and there's no rules. I said the other night in a particular talk, like for people who might like to dabble around a little bit, bigger brushes and work faster. If you're a painter, if you're a person who makes little tentative strokes, Bugger it. Get a lot of paint and some big brushes and bash it all down. You might go back to doing smaller things, but you have to, 
You have to remember what it was like when you were seven and you didn't care. You didn't care. You could just do it and you got some pleasure out of it. Whereas you get older and logic takes over and you start to, you start to think, well, I like to make a drawing of some cows in a field and you do it and it doesn't look like cows in a field and you get disappointed and you think, well, I'm not an artist. Well, you could make a painting of what it feels like to be a cow in a field. It doesn't have to look like it precisely. Time for huh? one last question over here. Yes. Uh, you've become an Australian icon. I've always known your name. I've known your paintings. Ken Dome, quite a well-recognised international name. Um, I've, you've had a painting on a plane. I think it's Qantas. Uh, what other challenges? What What's the biggest challenge that you still want to achieve in your career that... Uh, you're afraid of the most? Like, what, what's that hill, what's that next goal that you really want to strive for that's still there? For you? Okay, there are two answers to that. I'd like to do an Australian battleship, and I'd like to do, or say an aircraft carrier, I'd like to make it very bright. <laughs> I'd, I'd like people to think that we're a very nice nation, <laughs> and I'd like to paint all the planes like parrots. So that no one was afraid of us. And so rather than kind of camouflage, I'd like us to say, well, we're over here and we're nice. You know, we shouldn't be threatening anybody. Well, there you are. <laughs> there you are. I doubt very much whether somebody's going to give me an aircraft carrier to do it, but it'd be quite an interesting thing to do, wouldn't it? The other part of your question is I just want to be better at what I do, just to be better at it. And only I can decide in the end what, what, whether that's true. But I hope some other people might take some notice of it. Thank you, Ken. Great pleasure. curatorial perspective. Uh, the other day I was talking to an artist who uh, needed, to money, needed money to go overseas uh, to join her partner who'd got a job over there and she's a, she's a very well-known Australian artist and she wanted us to buy a picture of hers and, and we didn't really want it. And, um, <laughs> and she said, well, you know, I've, I've got to get, I've, I've, you know, I can't afford to go anywhere. And, and I said to her, well, you know, you have an enormous repertoire. Uh, of, of styles at your disposal. Um, perhaps you could think about, um, and, and, I, and I was tongue-tied, I couldn't think of how to say it because it was such a shocking thing to say and it's unheard of. Uh, uh, but there I was sitting at my desk trying to stammer out the words, perhaps you could think about painting something that people actually like and want. <laughs> Um, and, I, and I must have got close to it because she said, look, in Australia, um, it, people just don't understand what I do because, it, you know, overseas my work sells really well. And I felt like saying, well, why are you on the phone to me trying to sell us something that we don't want um, when you're refusing to do something that people like? 
Um, so that's that's a, a perspective on on uh, kind of unrealistic expectations of Australian artists that have built up, in my view, since the Whitlam years. <laughs> but, um, that that anything that they produce uh, should be bought out of a kind of duty uh, of, of all Australians to support the arts. A few years ago, uh, I curated an exhibition called Idle Hours, which was a, a, a collection of pictures of people in quiet moments, moments uh, of pleasure, moments where they were waiting, uh, in some cases, moments where they'd conked out, fallen asleep, or moments when they were ironing, nothing was really happening. And uh, I went to see Ken, because his works are the epitome of kind of sybaritic, idleness I suppose and and that's what I went looking to find um, Matisse like pictures of, of um, beautiful Judy in a beautiful room overlooking the harbour and there were those but there was one that I picked for the exhibition uh, which was called trying to paint on a Monday and it was a painting that Ken had done very soon after he gave up work uh, his very very successful very successful career in advertising and became a full-time painter. And he found himself in his studio, uh, a self-designated, a self-described, a self-appointed painter, waiting for something to come to him that he would put on the canvas that he could use to support his family. Uh, and it was a picture of a man frozen in, uh, in, 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 anticipation, in excitement, but also in fear and in humbleness at the task that he had set himself, which to, was to be a painter, to be the painter that he knew he could be. And over the years, I've watched Ken, Ken's work very carefully. And uh, now, uh, the exhibition that I'm developing for the end of the year at the National Portrait Gallery, um, I'm, I'm so proud to tell everyone that Ken is producing new works for that show. And every artist I tell, oh, and Ken don't, some of Ken's work from the 90s and, uh, and, and the late 80s, and then he's doing new work. And every single artist says, oh, that's fantastic, that's so exciting. So it is certainly not the case, and Ken's rather self-effacing about this, but it's certainly not the case that within the art community, Ken, um, is not regarded as a serious practitioner. Uh, Rick Amor says, don't call me a practitioner. I'm not a proctologist, I'm a painter. Um, but Ken is regarded as a very earnest and serious uh, exponent of his art. And I think the other thing that Ken has given us, I'm always trying to uh, encourage an art that depicts the Canberra region. Because I think when artists depict their place in the world, their geographical place, they really give something to people who live in that place. The people who live in Sydney now don't just feel that they inhabit Sydney, they feel that they live there in their imagination and that is partly because of the efforts of the artists who have portrayed, who have depicted the harbour and, and, and the Sydney, uh, Sydney buildings and so on. And that goes back to Streeton and Roberts and then Lloyd Rees and uh, Brett Whiteley and very much so Ken Doan, who has done so much more than any one of us really realises for uh, to promote Sydney as a tourist destination. The, the 
hundreds and thousands of Japanese people who've come to Sydney to get married, um, the, the many, many busloads of international tourists who come to Sydney in particular are oriented instantly by what they know of Sydney through Ken's work. They see uh, Sydney through a, a kind of um, cellophane kind of uh, projection, I suppose, of Ken's work. There's the Opera House, there's the Harbour Bridge, there are the stars, there are the clouds, there's the water, there are the fish. And it's an instantaneous orientation that we all feel, that we all need from artists. We need artists to abstract our cities, our, our native environments, for us to feel that we live there in our imagination, for us to be able to get on with the business of seeing and then seeing smaller details brought out against that broad uh, kind of framework that artists have given us. And Ken probably, Ken and Brett Whiteley in our lifetimes more than anyone else uh, have done that for Sydney. You go there and you say, oh, it's a classic Ken Doan day. The boat scudding across the harbour, the sun shining, the heat, the colour. And of course, the other thing is through Ken's design work, uh, he's impinged on us all. I, I have a young friend who's, um, whose aunt tragically uh, took her own life a couple of weeks ago and I was, I was looking for something to consult him and I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see Ken Doan. Um, you might know, not know Ken because you're young. And he said, oh, yeah, whenever I think of Ken Doan, I think of the tablecloth my aunt had. <laughs> well... Look, you know, and, and I'm sure it gave her a lot of pleasure, as my own Duna cover did, because I was a slatternly girl, and my mother bought me a Kendone Duna cover in the hope that that would inspire me to keep my room tidy. <laughs> and it was in the early 80s, I was 20 years old, and I can say I have such fond memories of, uh, of, of associated events. Uh, with that tuna cover, and, <laughs> and my son now has it in the back of his van that he uses to go on surf trips, and he loves it too. So, Ken, for both those streams um, uh, that have fed into enrichment of our lives, we thank you, and we thank you for talking tonight because you're such a, 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 an engaging speaker, and I had the happiest weekend over Easter, rainy Easter in Sydney, uh, with Ken's book as such a good companion over the over the few days of Easter, and I can really recommend it as a as just a joyous, happy, companionable read, and very interesting too. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more. <laughs>